All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you're listening to this freshly dropped, then uh, we've been away for a little bit. It's probably been like two or three weeks. Um, I took my third level of my board exams, and now we're back with a lot of fresh content, and we're excited to bring it to you. Before we do that, make sure you're signed up for the mailing list so that when we do have this content, um, you get to see it. Um, it's the best way to be directly in contact with us. Um, so make sure you go do that. Head over to our website to do that. There'll be like a little pop-up. It'll also be on the top bar. Go do that. That's the best way to contact us. But without any further ado, let's get into this episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome back, everyone. I'm excited to be back podcasting. And today with us, uh, we're talking about one of those epidemics that we talked about in the intro, which is obesity. And today, our guest is Dr. Uh, Michael Albert, who is a board-certified physician in internal medicine and also specializing in obesity medicine. And he's also the co-host of his own podcast, The Impossible Healthcare Podcast, where they talk about um, just different innovations, healthcare, among many other things. So go check that out. And also, fun fact, it is his birthday on the day that we were recording this. So um, if you end up following him, socials will be everywhere. Goes to happy birthday, probably a bit belated by the time you listen to this, but um, happy birthday and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Uh, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, aside from what I already said and why I decided to pursue medicine, specifically your field? Yeah, um, so um, thanks for having me once again. Um, as you mentioned, I'm double board certified in internal medicine and obesity. And I think if you look at my background, a lot of that stems from my passion to help people and uh, wanting to do it in a way that I felt like was intellectually challenging, engaging. <clears throat> and so that's why I think I ultimately went um, with internal medicine. And I think what I found throughout my training is that a lot of the way the current system is devised is to really serve treating people um, in an acute time of need. And for me, you know, that was great. That was exciting being able to help people get through infections, you know, acute coronary syndrome, all of these different things. But, uh, you know, when I would go to my clinic, I was uh, continually challenged by these cases of long-term disease management. I just didn't feel like we had the right systems in place and the right focus and approach to really um, delve into these issues and really make a meaningful difference. And, and so, you know, I was very unfulfilled, to be honest, with the way that internal medicine was approaching chronic disease management. And so I looked for something more. Um, a lot of that gets at the, the principles of preventive medicine. And for me, seeing the uh, increasing epidemic, both the metabolic epidemic as well as the obesity epidemic, I felt like there was a tremendous opportunity there. And lo and behold, I found out that there was this newly developed certification in obesity medicine by the ABOM, the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I explored that, fell in love with the practice of obesity medicine, and uh, I've been practicing it ever since, pretty much exclusively now for the last two years. So, um, yeah, I, 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 think it's, uh, I think it's really exciting time 
Um, as you may have talked about in prior episodes, there's a lot happening on the um, obesity medicine front and uh, happy to talk about that more a little, little bit later when we get into it. But uh, I, think, I think we're really starting to appreciate um, within healthcare the need to really be proactive in managing a lot of these conditions and not just treat them and manage them, but prevent the development of many of them. Definitely. I think the field of obesity medicine is picking up steam. Um, I remember just like as a medical trainee or like pre-medical school, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to do something like this, um, like the podcast and that I've always been putting out content related to kind of preventive medicine in one form or another because I saw this whole. And now when I look out there, there's just so many people that are talking about obesity and all these different models and people actually exploring it, thinking about it. And it's a very positive sign because it means they're actually trying to do something about it. And I think that's like one of the first dominoes, I guess, um, in a cascade of metabolic processes, which obviously we'll talk about a little later. You're the expert on that. Um, don't take my word for that. But uh, you talked a little bit about what preventive medicine is, like taking that approach um, as like a formal definition, kind of what does preventive medicine mean to you? Yeah, I think it, I mean, in, I think in many ways, it's the opposite of the current way we practice medicine, which is very reactionary in acute care medicine, right? You know, you hear the expression, our current healthcare system is a sick care system. Preventive medicine is really the other end of that spectrum. It is not waiting for disease to develop. It's preventing the the, the development of disease in the first place. So it's taking a proactive stance in managing people's health, whether we're talking about their mental and emotional well-being, whether we're talking about their physical well-being and their biomechanics, whether we're talking about their nutrition, and, and looking at all of these other surrogate health metrics like blood pressure and all these things that can have long-term effects and seeing how can we best optimize them. But I think rooted foundationally in these different concepts of health, whether you're talking once again about nutrition, wellness, sleep, et cetera. And, and I think it's really dedicating our time and our efforts and optimizing those different, um, those different focuses and factors to, to improve someone's health. So that once again, we're not in this stance where we're just reacting to what's happening to the person. We're actually preventing many of those diseases from, from occurring in the first place. Sure. And then kind of, a little bit of a sidebar. Um, obviously, the field of obesity medicine is not necessarily new, but it's exploding. Why haven't you? Uh, why don't you think there's been like a specific specialty or like clinic that's just like straight up preventive medicine? The American Board of Preventive Medicine. Yeah, I think uh, I think for the same reason that obesity medicine is just now really gaining a lot of traction, and that's because the system wasn't developed that way, right? Like if you look at the way in which, um, and money drives everything, right? The way in which we pay for our healthcare, it's paid for based off of what this sort of antiquated reimbursement model is, which is called fee-for-service. And that basically states that doctors and hospitals get paid for providing services. Now, if you provide a service and that is your incentive to practice medicine or provide care, then obviously it makes sense to treat whatever is happening. There's not a lot of incentive to provide care to prevent things from happening because prevention under that same sort of model doesn't get paid for necessarily, right? You're not treating anything in particular. You're not doing a procedure. You're not providing a medication per se or a surgery. You are in fact trying to prevent the need for all those things downstream. And so because the, our system was excuse me, founded in this fee-for-service, from this fee-for-service mindset, we've never had the incentives in play to really focus on prevention. And so I think you're seeing a shift, right? A shift towards what we call value-based care, which is really focusing on quality, focusing more on prevention and paying for these things. 
I still think we're a far ways away from that, but um, uh, people are talking about it. And I think fundamentally, until we change the incentives that are driving healthcare and change where the money is going, we're not going to see big, big strides taken in many of these different fields. Definitely. And I don't want to turn this into an insurance podcast. We're here to discuss obesity. But that's uh, one of the topics that we discussed in a previous episode with uh, Jeb Dunkelberger, who's a CEO of essentially a payvider organization. And I can't say I fully comprehended the episode because insurance goes straight over my head. But um, that's something if you guys are interested in hearing more about, then go check out that episode. But let's get into obesity. So obesity is often ill-defined and defined as like very many different things. And people just say, oh, someone's just large. They just have extra, extra weight. What is your definition of obesity as an obesity medicine specialist? Yeah. So I think it's, it's important to preface what I'm about to say with this, right? There's been a lot of focus over the years on numbers, right? BMI as being sort of the universal classification for whether or not someone has obesity. And I think as many people understand and what I hear all the time in terms of people complaining about it is that it doesn't do enough to really characterize a patient's health risk, right? And, and whether or not they're healthy or not. Um, we know that there is a spectrum of patient with obesity. And what I mean by that is there are some people who have a lot of excess weight and who have very little, if none, very little, if no evidence of disease no evidence of impairment from that excess weight. So when we, we take a step back and look at what is obesity, we have to understand it really gets at what is the consequence, what are the health consequences of carrying around that excess weight? And for some, they may have none, but they have a lot of excess weight and they're able to accommodate. For others, they may have very little excess weight. Maybe they're not, maybe they don't have obesity based on BMI criteria, but on the inside, they look like someone potentially carrying a lot of excess weight. And mm -hmm. They have a lot of organ damage or they have a lot of inflammation. And so I think what's critically important is obesity really gets at the health impact of the excess weight and how your body is responding to that excess weight. So if you look at definitions, one of the ones I love the most is really um, the Obesity Medicine Association. And they talk about it as being a progressive, a relapsing, a chronic progressive relapsing condition that is or uh, that is neurobehavior and origin and what drives it. And that has impacts on the psychological, the functional, biomechanical, as well as the cardiometabolic health of the individual. And so we look at obesity, not necessarily from weight being the be all end all, but by the health consequence of that weight. It's really about the disease taking place, not necessarily any number in particular. So it sounds like it's more of the pathology that someone might develop due to excess weight and maybe even not due to excess weight. Is that right? So someone can be like a normal quote unquote BMI within the healthy range. Could they still be obese due to like the pathology going on within their body or the disease state? Is that a thing? Yeah. So there is this, um, I think a working hypothesis that I think is fairly well accepted and still being investigated about this concept of the personal fat threshold. And we have some genetic studies that support this. And, mm -hmm. and what that gets at is um, based upon your genetic makeup, some people may be able to accommodate more excess energy, right? Which is fat. Fat is the storage form of energy in the body. Some people may accommodate very well. They may, be, they may have a BMI of 40 and have otherwise no evidence of underlying disease. They're very functional. They have great mental health. They have no evidence of cardiometabolic disease, no hypertension, hyperlipidemia, coronary disease, et cetera. So 
um, they, by all accounts, can handle and accommodate that. And we know a lot of that's genetically driven. We know specifically South Asians in particular um, don't accommodate excess weight very well. In fact, they develop a lot of the dangerous fat, the visceral adiposity at much lower BMIs. So they, in a lot of times, uh, just a BMI of 26 or 27, they may demonstrate significant cardiometabolic disease because they have a tremendous amount of visceral adiposity. And that's the fat. When I say that, that's the fat that's around your, your organs, your abdominal organs typically we think of that fat as having very metabolically active, being very pro-inflammatory. And, and we know that that type of fat drives a lot of the cardiometabolic disease that we see that is associated with obesity. So one of the questions that I might have for you after saying that is that let's say that person with a BMI 40 that you're describing who is uh, like cardiometabolically healthy, they have good mental health, everything's like in check. They have a clean bell of health, let's say. The traditional thought, if they were to go to any doctor's office, someone would probably recommend them to lose weight. Um, would you, I'm assuming this is not a BMI 40 because they're a competitive bodybuilder stepping on stage. I'm assuming it's because a large amount of fat mass, but would you still recommend this person to try to lose weight, even though they're cardiometabolically healthy and healthy by all sort of, um, measures from the body, or is this something that you don't necessarily need to worry about as much for this patient? So the concept of metabolically healthy obesity is one that I would say is still quite controversial. Mm. Um, what we know is this. It's likely that this population, and they typically are skewed younger, are individuals who are in a transitional period, meaning we still consider obesity to be a chronic progressive disease. And so these Mm. individuals who are often still very high risk of developing those obesity-related complications, like dyslipidemia, like metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, et cetera, they just may not be showing it right now. And the evidence we have is they're still at an increased risk compared to a normal weight population for cardio, cardi, cardiovascular disease. They're at an increased risk for the development of metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes. So I would still characterize them as being higher risk, and I would still recommend weight loss if that is something they wanted to, to pursue if, and this is the critical element, we do all of this with the intent of reducing someone's risk, right, and improving their quality of life and their health. And I think that's a critically important point that's often missed. There's so much, uh, there, there's this sort of myopic perspective that we just focus on numbers. And I, I find that very unhelpful because historically we've been, um, we've, had a, we've had a very poor job at really treating excess weight and helping people manage their obesity. And I think um, focusing more on what are the health benefits that we can get from pursuing all of these changes that ultimately will result in you losing weight, but really focusing on health as the first and foremost aspect of any pursuit for weight loss. And that makes perfect sense. And I like how that's also kind of incorporated into the definition of obesity, where it's like the chronic progressive disease. So maybe there's like transition period where you're saying perfect sense. So jumping to the next question, it is um, a lot of people, if you look on Twitter, they point to various reasons for obesity increasing in incidence, prevalence, all those things. And they always have this chart or like the average uh, person, I guess, or the average BMI or the amount of people who are obese is always like a flat line and all of a sudden it starts spiking. Why does the incidence of obesity continue to rise and why has it never been a problem before for humans? Humans have always been like gluttonous. Like if there's food, we'll probably eat it. So why now? Yeah, this is the mystery that I think it has not been definitively solved. But I think what you're alluding to is back in the 1970s, we see a dramatic increase in the rates of obesity mm-hmm. throughout our country. 
And what's even more concerning in the last 20 years, we've seen increases in the rates of severe obesity. So not just obesity as a whole, but of the highest um, percentiles uh, of BMI. And so that's obviously a concern. And they estimate that by 2030, 50% of the adult U.S. population will have obesity. So it's obviously an issue. We need to address it. Why are we seeing this increase now? Why haven't we seen that in previously in, in sort of human history? Well, one, we actually always had obesity. So when they even look back at historical data, obesity has always been around. One of the big drivers for why we have higher rates of obesity now is we know that it has to do with the environment. The environment has changed dramatically in the last hundred years. And one of the hallmarks of that change is really around the food and the food um, composition of our current food environment. Um, we know that these, you know, sugar, salt, and fat added, um, ultra processed, ultra portioned, um, delivered right to your front door anytime you want it. Um, food is, is very problematic. And we now have, based on some great work done by Kevin Hall's group out of the NIH, that we have some great studies that show, yeah, humans have a hard time regulating the amount of food they eat when it comes from these more westernized foods. And so I think it, it's not even a, a character issue. It's not even a moral issue. We just have to acknowledge how the system and the environment are contributing to our weight gain. Now, outside of that, there are many other factors. I don't want to just make this into it. This is a overconsumption issue. Food is definitely playing a role, but we are looking at other factors, things like environmental pollutants, endocrine disruptors, which are messing with our metabolisms and our hormonal milieu, things like um, genetic predisposition. We know if you put certain people in certain environments, they, their genetic predisposition will go will run rampant and they will increase their weight dramatically. Whereas other people, we know you could put them in a very obesogenic environment and they won't gain any weight. And so there is that discrepancy there based upon genetic susceptibility. So, you know, yes, environment's playing a huge role. Um, looking at sort of environmentally, we also know the perinatal environment's playing a huge role, right? So we're having generational impact on, on um, our, our weight. So there's a lot going on. It's not as simple, this is what's happening. We just got to address this one issue. It's a multifactorial, like you know, in a lot of medicine, it's rarely one single thing. There's often many contributors. I think the key is where should we invest our time to make the biggest impact? And I think we're starting to really have an understanding of some of those big problem areas. Of course. And on the uh, endocrine disruptors thing, that's actually something that we talked about with uh, Dr. Carl Nadolsky on a previous episode. So if you're a listener and you're kind of interested in reading more about that, um, the Endocrine Society actually has a link, uh, like a statement page on endocrine disruptors and kind of what they know and how that actually works. Because I know there's a lot of um, interesting things that people say about those. So for whatever's evidence-based, go check out the Endocrine Society about that. There's definitely some part of it. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is that some people, genetics play a portion of it. Obviously, it's multifactorial, but um, for those genetics, and I guess for that, if you're looking at uh, holistically at a patient, can you identify someone who's at a higher risk for obesity? Obviously, you can't look at someone and like know their genes, and we're probably not going to genetically screen everyone because that's beyond the scope of what we probably should be doing. But can you identify someone who is at risk, and can we help them? Can you treat them and kind of prevent obesity from happening? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Like, what are these different elements that allow us to identify at-risk populations? I think one, family history is strong. You look at 
early on. And this is the, I think this is where we're really failing a lot of the younger generations is that you can look and see their parents may be carrying a lot of excess weight or their parents have been struggling with their weight for decades. Those children are going to be inherently higher risk. We just know. We know that there is a strong genetic inheritance of this obesity risk. And so um, I think identifying those kids early on and really making sure that that is a focus in a lot of the health counseling and a lot of the environmental architecture in terms of counseling parents, all of those things have to be, because we, we know the seeds are, are, they're set even at such an early age. A lot of the data that has been coming out that the obesity rates in, in the pediatric population are increasing just as much, if not more in some cases, as the adult population. So we have to make sure that we are identifying this, these at-risk groups early on. And a lot of it's just a simple family history like you do anytime you're doing ty- a history intake. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, I guess one of the other questions going along with that is that, is that something that we should have patients like come in and is that something we should screen for is what I'm getting at, I guess, because we have just like various screenings. So you have your hypertension screenings, diabetes screenings. Should we be adding an obesity screening? Is that something that can feasibly done? Would it be useful? Yeah. I mean, so I think in one sense we do, we, we do screen using BMI and, and I know a lot of people have their own feelings about that. We know since it is a progressive condition that identifying people before they even become develop obesity, right, when they are um, overweight or when they they are sort of quote unquote uh, have pre obesity is important because oftentimes if no intervention is applied, that person will go on to develop obesity. So BMI screening is used in kids. They have a slightly different way of doing it. It's based on percentiles than adults, but but that should be done for all types of people. And, and I think outside of that, to be very comprehensive, yeah, you should ask them as, lo- as well as, you know, talking to the family about cancer history and hypertension, all these things that we classically do, we should ask them about, you know, are a lot of the family members, they struggle with their weight. If they do, then little Johnny or Susie is probably going to have a hard time managing their weight as they get older. And so we need to be keenly aware of that and, and start educating now And I think that's one of the real failings in our society is that we don't have that education and that support for the younger generations. It's just not widely done. We don't do it in schools. We don't do it, you know, the little education you get at PE or whatever, or a home ec class is not enough. And so I think we have to understand that this is a real issue. We have to develop ways to incorporate it into our systems for people of all ages. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. Yeah, I think the conversation with uh, screening and everything is an important one to have and we're doing what we can. But one of the other issues that comes along with that is just like bandwidth. How much can physicians do? There's already so much that we're dealing with that now if you have to, not have to, but if you start adding on these different components, then it's adding more and more paperwork, burnout and all these different things. We don't have enough physicians. There's a primary care physician shortage. It's just impossible to do. And one of the things that you mentioned is there's not the support at, let's say, schools where you could have someone who's set up at a school, which obviously is dealing with a lot of kids um, that might come from various different um, 
families and even in different socioeconomic groups, obviously that plays a factor into obesity because you know that that's a strong correlate. So in those schools, you could have someone who is kind of screening for these and helping kids develop healthier behaviors. But that's something that we currently aren't doing. I personally hope we see that happen in my lifetime, at least in our lifetimes. And um, yeah, that would be excellent, but it's not happening. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. Listen, this is going to be one of the greatest issues of our lifetime, right? And um, we need to increasingly acknowledge the burden that it's placing on the health of Americans and understand that we have to think innovatively about how we're going to approach it. You're right. Doctors are already burdened with a lot that they have to manage in that 15 to 20 minute appointment, right? Which is absurd in and of itself. That's for a different time. Mm-hmm. But, but we have to think about what are the various community stakeholders that could be involved? Could you have a, like a health liaison in public schools that works with kids, that does group educational classes on cooking, on fitness, and, and incorporate it more seamlessly in the way that we operate as a society? This, this has to be done as a village. It's not going to be solved by a doctor in a 10 to 15 minute appointment. And if we think, think that, and if we continue down that path, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot, right? 100% agreed. Um, we're going to shift gears away from kind of the definitions and setting like what sets people up for obesity and go to the other side of the spectrum, which is treating obesity and kind of managing um, patients with obesity. So the first question there is, what is the ultimate goal of treating obesity? Is it kind of helping them out with the cardiometabolic risk factors and all those different things, dyslipidemia, helping them with medications, or is it helping them lose the weight or both of them together? What are your goals when you're helping someone out? Yeah, this is a uh, multiple parts to this answer. So to be mm-hmm. quite frank, so one, you know, we do have some well-validated metrics where we know if we can reach certain levels of weight loss, percentage weight loss, typically that people's risk will redu- be reduced or their burden of disease will be, will be lessened. And we know typically we see the, in, the initial somewhere around three to 5%. And that's where we classically see a lot of long-term lifestyle interventions kind of meet. That's really what we see long-term. And a lot of people are surprised by that. I I tell them you do a Weight Watchers program, you do any type of lifestyle intervention, long-term weight loss is only around three to 5%. A lot of people Mm -hmm. would say that that's not enough. Okay. Whatever. Um, Then you look at 10% and 10% has been sort of classically the benchmark in obesity medicine, because that's where we start to see even more risk reduction. We even believe, now we need some higher quality data to show this, that you will see a benefit in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction, which is sort of the pinnacle of risk reduction for um, obesity. And so you're right. It's about, we do look at certain metrics and certain percentages in terms of weight loss because we know what goes along with that is improvement in disease management, is reduction in disease risk. Also things like improving uh, functional status, improving sleep quality. Um, So- it's, it's, it's important across the board. And when we talk to patients, we typically come from the standpoint of let's focus on the health implications of this pursuit. Um, because once again, there's so many factors that go, that are involved in whether or not someone's going to lose weight. For me, the most important thing is, are you getting healthier? Are you able to thrive to a much better level than you were before? If you're doing that, then we're having some success. And I think that is an important aspect that, that that goes unmentioned often. I really love that. Um, one of the main things that we talk about on this podcast is that we're not just preventing for the sake of preventing, but we're doing things and reducing your risk so that you can live your life to Absolutely. a higher degree, to a better degree, maximizing, like fulfilling whatever it is that you want to do, that you're able to do that. And that's the point of prevention. So I love that you bring that up. 
Um, when it comes to kind of the medication aspect of this, um, obviously semaglutide has been in the news. It's been all over Twitter. It's been everywhere. And we haven't really addressed it on the podcast. So do you mind talking about it a little bit? Yeah. So I think, you know, it has garnered a lot of interest, particularly among the different media outlets and, and even the academic circles. And I think you're seeing uh, a lot of acceptance. So semaglutide, um, and it has a number of- <laughs> I, I completely butchered that name. <laughs> no, it's, you know, whatever. These names are hard to pronounce. Um, <laughs> has a lot of different commercial versions of it, right? The, the branded versions. It has, it, it comes from a class of medications called GLP-1 agonists. And uh, they were originally developed as type 2 diabetes medications. And um, they stimulate this, this receptor in the, in the GI tract that helps control blood sugar. And that's why they were developed. Um, but what we found is that over time in studying them, they also promote quite a bit of weight loss. And so they now have been sort of refined. And we have this latest commercial version called Wegovy, which I'm sure many people have heard about. It got a lot of news. This is a higher dose, a higher potency version of semaglutide, and it has demonstrated to date the most significant, the largest amount of average weight loss in a phase three clinical trial. And so that's incredibly encouraging. One, because we're seeing big health improvements across the board. Once again, that 10% mark I said was critical. We're seeing with Wigovi, oftentimes it's even more than that. And about a third of the population that was studied also lost uh, 20% or more. So really we're seeing huge improvements. The other That's big amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really exciting. The other big aspect of Wegovy um, or semaglutide is that uh, it's been shown to be incredibly safe. And I think there is this uh, legacy bias that has lingered around the weight loss space. And I think this is why also people have sort of uh, bad opinions or impressions about what weight loss is or obesity medicine, because Back in the early 2000s with FinFin, a lot of these early medications, even recently with Lorcaserin that was withdrawn by the FDA, there have been some real safety concerns, whether it's cardiovascular mm -hmm. safety, whether more recently with Lorcaserin, it was around cancer, increased incidence of cancer of different types. So uh, that has plagued the obesity medication um, development and, and um, just uptake as a, from the medical community. But what we see with these GLP-1s, we have over a decade's worth of data on these, and they're incredibly safe. And in many cases, they may reduce your risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And they're looking at that in particular with this new medication, Wigovi. But I think they're exciting because they, they are safe. They are very effective. They're generally pretty well tolerated. Um, so I, I think it's a really exciting time, especially if you look at the pipeline of medications being developed. Um, it's a really exciting time to be a part of this field. For sure. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about in conjunction with kind of the medication aspect is that lifestyle modification. So you're talking about how only three to five percent of people or you only get three to five percent of weight loss over the like long term lifestyle uh, changes, which really is not super significant, I would say. Um, and that's whatever you want to say about that as well. I, I don't remember if you said that was significant. Yeah, I mean, so you do see health benefits. So I, I, I want to be clear. You do see health benefits. You see a reduction in the incidence of diabetes, right? The famous trial that showed around 3% weight loss was the, the diabetes prevention program back in the mm. early 2000s. So that's an important measure, right? Like you're reducing the development, the incidence of disease. So we see some things like that happen with even modest weight loss, like 3 to 5%. I think the critically important aspect for a lot of people who are struggling with their weight, who have obesity, um, 
is that, listen, a lot of the existing lifestyle interventions are going to offer very modest results. Now, why is that? And I think you may be asking that question yourself. Why isn't diet and exercise more effective? Well, I think it has to do with a few things. One, um, it's hard to maintain any long-term behavior change. I think a lot of us can, how many times have you gotten excited to go work out only to a month or two later, stop doing it, going back to your old habits? If we look at why that is, our biology fundamentally has been developed to minimize our energy expenditure, right? Because from an evolutionary standpoint, it didn't favor us to, to spend all this energy throughout the day if, if we were worried about when we would go find food, right? That would ultimately lead to starvation if you were expending all this energy and you didn't have enough, uh, you know, enough calories around in the day to accommodate for all that energy. So our bodies develop to be and to preference quite literally being sedentary. The other aspect of that is our biology also doesn't like us to reduce our energy intake because it also thinks we're trying to starve ourselves. So it developed these really elegant feedback systems and it knows when you're trying to diet. And what it does to counter that is quite literally in very insidious ways to affect your neurohormonal milieu of your brain. It really changes the way your brain functions on a fundamental level. Those physiologic changes, the net effect of that is that everything looks tastier. You're more hungry all the time. You're less satisfied with eating. And so what we see happen long-term is people, despite their good intentions, start eating more food um, throughout the length of their diet. So not only does their body favor them to not move, not only do, does their body long-term favor them to eat more, the net effect of all that means it's really hard to lose weight and maintain that weight loss. And so you throw that, those considerations into the world in which we live, where we have companies that are trying to leverage those biological drives against us, right? Mm-hmm. We get all the food delivered to your door that you would need. You don't even have to leave to go buy anything because Amazon will deliver it to your door as well. You know, uh, the food is tasty and delectable and you can get any type of delicious morsel on any street corner. These aren't always the healthiest foods for you. We live in a world that is leveraging our biology against us and our biology is fundamentally working against us. You can start to see why it's hard to lose weight with just diet and exercise alone long term. And so I think I think that's critically important. And even beyond that, we know that just people will vary in their ability to lose weight. People may be saying, oh, I'm very skeptical of what Dr. Albert's saying right now. I know someone who lost 100 pounds and kept it off. I'm not saying that's not possible. We absolutely see these cases. But generally what we're looking at are the exceptions and not the rule. And that's for all the reasons I just mentioned. And one of the other things I want to add and bring up uh, that you were talking about, you were talking about exercise and how a lot of people just start exercising and get really excited about it and then they fall off. And then I think exercise is also something that people look at quite a bit um, when they're trying to lose weight. They're like, oh, I need to get back on my exercise program, um, yada, yada, yada. I need to start running again, start going to the gym. But one of the things that I've recently been investigating, and I just listened to a, the uh, Barbell Medicine podcast with Dr. Uh, Herman Ponser this morning during my run, um, was kind of the difference in um, caloric models where you have like the... Uh, I think it was called the energy constraint model versus the additive model. And that kind of just goes into like your basic metabolic rate, how much energy you expend while you're doing your daily things. And one of the things that they're finding, it seems, is that no matter how much exercise you do, um, unless you're like a supreme athlete that's like doing ultras, is that you don't actually burn that many calories and your like basal metabolic rate will decrease because your body wants to stay within a certain range. So that's one of the other things that I'm investigating, which makes diet even more important, which makes it even harder because once you start trying to restrict your calories, your brain says, oh, we got to eat some more. We're starting to get less food. And you have this environment where you said Amazon can bring food to your door. So it seems very difficult. 
Yeah, and I, I'm not trying to discourage people. I think I think that it's easy when you see all the things sort of working against you to, to be discouraged. And and this is where when I work with patients, we talk about, all right, let's let's look at things in a very practical, incremental way. Right? Let's see where you are now. Let's not expect you to run a marathon tomorrow. Let's not expect you to dramatically change the way you eat tomorrow. Let's see how we can develop these marginal gains that with time can serve as sort of the compounding interest of your health improvement, right? And I think that's a way to build a model for sustainability is working within sort of the appropriate uh, context of that individual and really personalizing it based on that individual's wants and needs. And so I think if you are trying, which a lot of people do, to become a different person overnight, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. If you think about it as a long-term journey, right? A lifelong pursuit, and you're working at how do I improve myself a little bit every day, even just a little bit, walk a little bit more, eat a little bit healthier, and finding those small victories, I think it's going to be a lot more sustainable for most. And I think what it also sounds like is that aside from just um, requiring people to have the self-motivation to do a lot of these things is the importance of a counselor or someone who's there to kind of guide them through and help them through all navigating all these challenges that they might face. For example, you might also have someone who's super motivated, um, gets a lot done in three months. They like lose a significant amount of weight, maybe like 10, 15 pounds. Then all of a sudden they have a bad week where they just crave everything. They eat everything. They can't hold back. And then now they feel defeated and they're like, I can't do this. Whereas if you have someone who is like a appropriately trained counselor or someone who knows what's going on, they'll be like, there are going to be losses, but this, let's not think about this in four months. Let's think about this in like a year, two years, three years. So having the counselor there really to guide them through their failures, helping them, not necessarily failures, but like, um, I guess you know what I mean, but just those periods where they're going to cave into those things and helping them navigate through that would probably be more beneficial than anything else that we could do. Yeah. And I think that's where you're starting to see these health coaching programs um, being integrated into sort of the healthcare system as a way to um, provide that layer of support that's needed, right? It's the continual layer of support. It's the ongoing longitudinal support. And so Mm -hmm. you're right, critically important. It's not enough to want to change. A lot of people want to change. What separates the people that are then successful in pursuing that? And I think oftentimes when you look at it, and this is where I like to get into sort of sort of more of the business mindset of things, is developing systems for success, right? Um, most people don't approach it. They, they try to leverage all of this intrinsic motivation and turn it into this remarkable health result. Well, like you mentioned, we see that all the time. Two months, remarkable weight loss, then the weights were all gained back. We have to understand this is a long-term pursuit. And for you to change, you have to fundamentally change who you are. And that only change that only develops out of a change in your daily systems of operation. And so I, I tell people, think about it, because a lot of them, oh, that makes a lot of sense when we talk about business. And I say, you should be running your life very similar to a business where you're creating these systems <laughs> of accountability. You're creating these systems of feedback. If you don't, it's not enough to want to. I, I tell people so many times, you can't just want to change. It's not enough. You mm-hmm. have to develop the systems that allow you to change and really foster and cultivate change over the long term. Definitely. I think that's a fantastic discussion. And I think that's something I hope we see a lot more of. Um, not just the fat loss coaches, which you see on Instagram, which are just giving you like really restrictive diets and telling you, eat this and you'll be good to go in four weeks or like six weeks, however long it is. But we have that longitudinal approach. And I think we're seeing more of that, which I'm very excited about. Um, 
But right now, it seems that we still have a lot of questions about obesity. Obviously, we talked about how the field of obesity medicine is still growing. Um, at this point, in your opinion, do you think we have more questions or answers? Ooh, um, that's that's uh, so. It, the field's in a really interesting place, right? So I think you're starting to see, as I mentioned earlier, the development and and the ongoing development of a lot of very effective tools. And I tell people surgery, medication, these are all tools. They're not a replacement for this system development like I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think we're, we're starting to see um, a lot of momentum develop in this space, whether it's from a public policy standpoint, whether it's from an investment, whether it's from a therapeutics. And so I think it's very exciting and we have more answers now than we ever have had. With that said, there's still so much that we need to learn <laughs> about it, right? And so there's yeah. always a but, right? So there, there, there's so much we need to learn, even around that question that you posed uh, very nicely before, about why are we seeing so the, the rates go up dramatically, right? Um, I'm not convinced that food explains all of it. I think there may be another large culprit, sinister culprit that, that is contributing, whether it is environmental pollutants, you know, or some of these, I, I won't be surprised if we get more um, evidence of that. So I, I think, um, I think getting more of those answers, because once again, as we talk about in medicine, the way I'm sure you were taught as I was, it's much more important to treat the root cause of the issue and not just keep treating symptoms. And for too long with obesity, we just have been treating the symptoms um, and, and we haven't been mm-hmm. looking at what are the drivers and how do we effectively create change on those fronts? Because that ultimately is going to have the largest effect on the, our population health. 100% agreed. And this is kind of a perfect transition. You've been hinting at it along with these last two answers, a little bit about like entrepreneurship, innovation. Um, you're into it. Um, you discuss a lot of it on your podcast, the Impossible Healthcare Podcast, which you should all go check out. Um, but what can entrepreneurs do to help in this obesity epidemic? Obviously, there's a problem. Entrepreneurs love solving problems. That's kind of what this entire field is. What can they do to help? Yeah, I think for me, so um, I guess a little bit of a spoiler. So I, I'm, I'm throwing my hat in the ring. So I'm actually co-founding um, and serving as a CMO for a new obesity startup. Um, wow, congratulations. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty much in the, I'm pretty, I'm in the thick of it right now, really just working on, <laughs> on sort of the, the patient and provider experience. So I, I will have more to share going forward about this, but I would tell you, there was this certain point that I got to, and I think it was a lot of the frustration from the years of just sort of grinding away in our current healthcare system, feeling like we weren't making a big enough impact. And I finally had this, uh, I had this interview with someone and I was talking to them and, and they told me something that, that really was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And they said, listen, Mike, you can sit here and be the doctor 20 years from now that has a great practice and still complain about the same problems of this broken system. Or you can be, be you can be the person that says I've had enough and start to be that real change that you want to see. And I said, and, and for me it was like, yes, I want to be a part of that. Um, so it's it's I think identifying a problem, and it doesn't always have to be such a you know such a large problem like the obesity epidemic. It can quite literally be an issue that you see as a physician on a day to day basis, where you're like, there's really not good evidence for that. I don't know why we do those things. Why don't we study it? and develop a study for that. You could look at, you know, a patient 
some aspect of patient care and say, you know what, we can do better. We're not providing enough value to the patient. And then really try to develop a solution around that. I think uh, if you can identify a problem or a need within the healthcare system and provide something that has real value, intrinsic value to either the provider or the patient, and I think those are the two groups that are uh, really the victims of this whole process, then I think that you can contribute in meaningful ways. And so for me, you know, I, I find this sort of field uh, very compelling because I think there is so much excitement happening. I think it's about developing the systems that really support long-term change for patients. And then what I'm also excited about is, is really creating the best possible, best possible provider experience, right? I think too often we've asked our providers to uh, adapt to a system that was never built with them in mind and not enough have we, have we then said, okay, how can we make this system adapt to you? And so for me, I, I get excited about both concepts about making the best possible patient experience, but also provider experience. I think if you're building something in healthcare that's going to be very disruptive, you, you're serving both of those users at the end of the day. Your response to that got me super excited. This is one of the things I'm really passionate about. We actually talked about this. My personal mentor in uh, physical medicine rehab, Dr. Azlan Tariq, we had him on the podcast a long time ago, and he is an entrepreneur within the space. And one of the things that he talked about is that for too long, physicians just kind of take the back seat and they identify problems, but someone else solves it. And that someone else solving it is not a doctor. They don't know like the best approach for the patient. They don't know the background, the context, and how to appropriately solve this problem. And that ends up with physicians being frustrated with the solutions. And then we just keep complaining about whatever's going on, but we don't actually do it. So I'm super passionate about kind of entrepreneurship within the medical field of doctors themselves becoming entrepreneurs because we really do need to solve the problems in our own field. And if we don't, someone else will. And we are not going to be in mind, as you were just stating. And then we're just going to be that cog in the wheel that just keeps churning and churning. And then eventually we'll get burnt out at some point. You have rates of physician burnout that just keep going up because we aren't the problem solvers in our own field. Yeah. And I think the, the only way that we start to change that narrative is once again, we throw our hat in the ring. And so I think for me, that was a, that was a critical point for me, deciding that I'm going to go all in. And so... Um, I actually, and I, I mentioned this earlier, so it's not breaking news or anything. So I actually left my academic faculty position at Cedar sinai and UCLA to go start this uh, new venture. So I, I'm really excited wow. to share more about this in, you know, with people in the coming months. But right now, my, the entirety of my focus is on providing the best possible patient and provider experience. I can't wait to hear more about it. That's super exciting. I love it. Um, as we close out this podcast, I want to ask you our classic question, which is if you're getting coffee at Starbucks and someone recognizes you, now you're a big shot CMO of this company, they recognize you at Starbucks and they're like, um, hey, Dr. Albert, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in that two minutes? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question to answer in such a short amount of time. What I would tell you is this. Um, I think having the right mindset is so critical. Um, because real change takes a long time. And so for me, it's about um, really focusing on your approach. And so I would say, you know, approach exercise, approach the way you eat like it were taking some type of medicine. Like be proactive, have a, a, a very particular intent with how you do it. My concern is this, if we continue to be passive in the way that we approach our lifestyles, then you will have to take medicine as if it were food for the rest of your life. And for some people, that that's really sort of jarring when I'd say that. Take, you know, approach food exercise as if it were medicine or you'll have to take medicine like if we're food the rest of your life. But I think it's a critically important aspect 
that we have all these things working against us. Our biology, I talked about the environment. If you aren't, if you aren't the active driver of this thing called life for yourself, then you are going to be the victim. And so I encourage people to be that choice architect for themselves, be the captain of their ship, be proactive, be engaged in your life. That's the only way that you'll, you'll find that meaningful change. Absolutely love it. It was a pleasure talking to you. And once again, thank you for spending part of your birthday here with us uh, chatting. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the birthday wishes. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.